Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRM. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Good afternoon. Welcome to I Communicate, and happy that you're joining us here on a Thursday afternoon here on WCRN. And uh, I have to give a special thanks to the station today because the topic of our show today is the F word. And I got to tell you, I'm very grateful that in light of this pandemic that you've allowed me to talk about the F word today. You're talking about frequency and modulation, right? A reasonable guess. And you know what? It's funny, Ted. I I thought a lot of people would conclude I was talking about feedback. 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 Okay. Yeah. Feedback. But but uh, but I'm actually talking about the biggest F word of all. It's also four letters, fear. Fear itself. Right? So, you know, but I am going to I'm going to approach fear from perhaps a little bit of a different perspective than you've you've heard before. And the thing about fear is fear is a tactic that many people in leadership positions and authority positions use use to motivate people. And frankly, I just I'm not convinced anymore that it's a really effective tactic. And let me address the elephant in the room. I know certain people need the fear as a structure form of motivation for them. There are people that really rely on that as a way to kick them in the butt and get them going. And I, and I understand that. But what, what is concerning me now more than ever is in the world of sales, and this show today is going to be about sales emotional intelligence, having some self-awareness, right? And in the world of sales, companies are starting to panic. Revenues are starting to drop. Clients' pipelines are getting smaller. Clients aren't ordering as many products or enlisting as many services. And so what do leaders typically do in that situation? They look at their sales teams and they say, hey, if we don't hit these numbers, we're dead. And I, and I think about if I'm in a room and I'm listening to someone motivate me, is, it, is that what's going to do it? Is when they say, if we don't hit these numbers, we're dead. And then, and then the extension of that is as organizations face potentially declining revenues or uncertainty about the future, the natural inclination when people panic and get stressed is to push harder. Let's close everything you can, right? And rarely does this jumpstart activity. More often does it create bad habits And more often does it create salespeople doing things out of their normal process or routine that creates longer-term problems down the line, such as inaccurately uh, inaccurately representing their forecast and pipeline. So for all the leaders out there listening to the show today, we're not going to focus on your motivational style, but I wanted to set that foundation knowing that as you push harder and as you think that's an effective way to motivate – I want you to think of all the individual fears that salespeople already have going into that discussion. And by the way, Ted, this is awesome. I looked up the phobia. I love the names of certain phobias, right? Yeah, yeah. This is the name of the phobia that describes irrational and persistent fear of failing at something. 
Okay, so fear, F-E-A-R, failing, F-I-F-A-I-L-I-N-G. It's called attichophobia. Attichophobia. Attichophobia, irrational and persistent fear of failing at something. And what's interesting is the, the this all starts with salespeople. They're ashamed of what they do. I mean, let's be honest. You know, I've talked about this on the show before. Salespeople will do anything in their power to not call themselves a salesperson, right? So the fears all start of this awareness, and this is where the emotional intelligence comes in. You're aware that you don't want to be associated with being called a salesperson. You don't want to be associated with it. You don't want the title of anything that has the word sales in it. But yet, what's interesting is, We'll do anything in our power to not be associated with the word, but yet our behaviors in the way we communicate with people often very much fulfill the prophecy of what they're expecting a salesperson to be like. So, you know, I read this article earlier when I was preparing for the show, and it was interesting. It talks about this, and this is the advice, Ted, it says. It says, just embrace the fact that you're going to sound like a salesperson. It said, what else are you going to sound like? A mechanic sounds like a mechanic. A programmer sounds like a programmer. And I thought to myself, boy, that's awful advice. How about, how about we recognize what are the fears you have that you associate with being a salesperson and address those so you don't have to have that stress? For example, the obvious fear is, right, being pushy, right? So we don't want to sound pushy. So the fear of being associated with the salesperson is the people we're dealing with are expecting us to sound pushy. But the one piece of advice that I thought was really relevant was embracing the profession. And many of us who are in the sales profession, what are we doing? We're improving business performances and processes. We're helping consumers and products, uh, consumers get the products and services they need. And we're helping keep companies in business, for God's sake, which, Ted, strikes me as something kind of important these days. Uh, yeah. You know, it never occurred to me when I was coming up to be ashamed of being a salesman because I was taught at a very young age that nothing has ever improved in the world without somebody selling the idea first. Well, that's, that's brilliant, Ted, because, you know, I've often found when I do training and I'm a big believer in, in confident and effective communication involves word choice. And it's so funny, Ted. I'll take a poll sometimes, and I'll ask people to vote on three words. Influence, persuade, and sell. And clearly, it goes in that order, right? If it's selling, people hate it. If it's persuading, they, they still feel like it's a form of sales. But if it's influence... It's less bad. I won't say it's good. It's less bad. Right, right. As a sales manager, I would tell new salespeople, if you're in front of someone and you're hard selling, you're in front of the wrong person. You yeah, want to be in front of somebody who has a need. Yeah, but that's just it, Ted. It's that word hard sell. And people who have fears around being called a salesperson who are entering the profession because they think that's the only way, that's their perception, is everybody hard sells. Yeah, well, not everybody's selling used cars. And, you know, you, you have to embrace the fact that you can tell immediately if your pitch is being received as a hard sell. 
And that's time to find that special word in sales, which is next. Okay, so that's a perfect segue. So what we're going to do on the show today is we're going to not only address the biggest fears salespeople have, but I'm going to I'm going to give you solutions how to overcome each of them. So you're going to be able to move past awesome. this by the end of the show yeah, today. Isn't that great. great? Yeah. All right. So the first one we're going to address, Ted, is the fear of failure. Okay. So everybody's familiar with the fear of failure. But what's interesting about this one related to sales is this. The failure rate in sales is going to be incredibly high, even for the creme de la creme of salespeople. So what other kind of profession do you start out where if you're only going to convert 10% or 20% of your leads, you're, that could be really good depending on the kind of company you work for, the product or service you sell. But that means 70 or 80% or even 90% of the time, you're going to get rejected. So I think part of the challenge here in assessing a fear of failure is this. You've got to be honest with yourself. And you've got to have some data to work with, all right? So this, these, are, these are questions I ask companies when I work with them about fair or failure in sales. First of all, what's an average conversion rate for your company? So for example, I was helping a client yesterday on his resume. He's trying to get a new sales position. And he writes on his resume that he, converted, he converts 20% of his leads. And I said, but that has no basis by itself. You know, I don't know if that's good or bad because I don't know what it's relative to. So there's two ways to look at something, right? You can look at it that you're successful 20% of the time or the comparative data to the people in your field and at your company, it's at the high end, low end, or the standard of what it's set. So that's an example. But this is what I want you to think about, right? This is the big takeaway with fear of failure in sales. Think of a typical sales cycle. And I'm just going to highlight the, the most important steps. And think of the opportunities for failure in this sales cycle. The initial call. Could be a cold call, could be a warm call, could be a referral call. But whatever it is, the initial call, there's a high opportunity for rejection. You get through the initial call. Hell, you even made the presentation. They like it. Now you have to follow up with the client to see what they think or what the other decision makers think. They don't like it. Fail. You get through that step. The prospect responds and says, geez, this sounds pretty good. We're really giving it some thought. We need to review with a few more people and we'll get back to you. Well, there's that next step when they get back to you, fail. And then how about the stuff like your boss won't approve a concession during a negotiation that squashes the deal? You, you can do everything right and lose to a competitor but the challenge you face if you're in sales is, it is so easy to say you failed, it's a lot harder to prove it. I want you as a salesperson to start proving failure. I want you to start defining your own metrics for failure and success for that matter. Look, I am sick and tired of we as a society dictating success and, and failure based solely on quantitative metrics. You know, it doesn't work. It's, it's, if it, you turn people into robots because if the only way you're evaluating them is on quantitative metrics, they stop having ambition of what their own definitions of success are and failure for that matter. Now, look, 
if it's your company, if you don't own a company and you're listening to this show and you're a leader or you're a salesperson, and if you have a company and you're deciding how you're going to motivate people, are you really solely going to rely on quantitative metrics? I tell sales teams all the time, you have to develop your own goals. Now look, here's a prime example. And I'll talk more about this later in the show. But if you're making a cold call, if the only metric for success on the cold call is you get an appointment, you may may not as well even bother. Because most of the time, that's not even going to happen. But if your metric is, did I capture their contact information? Did I get past the gatekeeper? Did Did I find a new technique that is effective in getting past the gatekeeper? Did I find good times to follow back up with the decision maker so I'm, I'm, I'm better suited to hit success? There's, there's a half dozen right off the top of my head ways that you could have success in a cold call aside from making an appointment. And so, look, I'm not in the business of pacifying people. As a matter of fact, I hate pacifying people. But sales is too unforgiving of a profession that if your fear of failure definition is so broad you're always going to default to I wasn't good enough or I failed. And I'm, and listen, the inner voice. We know the inner voice is powerful. And I want to tell you a quick story, conversation I had with my son this morning about our next failure topic, which is fear of rejection. Okay, and this was a classic conversation. This, this to me, Ted, sums it up beautifully. All right. So I asked him, I said, Cole, let's say you were to ask out a girl that you find really attractive, mm. and she rejects you. Bummer. I said, what, what do you tell yourself in that moment? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, what's the message you're giving yourself? When you hear that no, what are you feeling like? And he says, well, I, I feel like I guess I'm not attractive enough for her. So I said, wow, that's interesting. You immediately went to looks. Right. So you immediately conclude it's your looks that aren't good enough. And Ted... I said to him, and and I'm going to get to that in a moment, but I said to him, I said, Cole, you know what's interesting is if the last three girls you asked out, and let's base this on the premise that you're asking out girls that you think are very kind and beautiful and friendly and all that, that the last three girls you asked out, you said yes, or they said yes, and this fourth one says no, and all of a sudden you start second guessing, you're not attractive enough, you're not nice enough, you're not whatever. So I think that was very symbolic of the way salespeople view rejection. Because if you get rejected, there's a tendency to think, well, what have you done for me lately? I, ha- I just got rejected. I didn't get the deal done. And there's an opportunity there to belittle yourself or think bad about yourself. And what's interesting is rejection to me is the most powerful tool for data and information. Absolutely right. Right? Absolutely. So I think to myself, when I get rejected, what does that mean? I don't automatically default to I'm not attractive enough, although with my lack of hair, it's very possible. (laughs) You know, when those (laughs) metrics things first came out and I was on a job and I was filling out the paperwork and I was just, you know, I, I was flabbergasted that, that that my company wanted me to take time away from selling to fill out paperwork so that they could measure what I was doing and how much of my time should I subtract in order to make the matrix accurate. And, I, you know, I started to sing a little song after every sales call that I got rejected in. 
and a couple of the people who used to go out with me, Ted, you walk out of failure meeting singing a song, and you don't do that when we win. <laughs> What's that about? And I said, oh, you want to hear my song? It goes like this. I'm one note closer to a yes. I'm one more closer to a yes. And, you know, I just used to put that in my head. I'm one no closer to a yes. Okay, but I want to tell you something about that. I got to tell you, Ted, that line, one no closer than a yes, we know rationally it's true. But see, to me, it's lines like that that salespeople can't get over the hump because they tell themselves that, but it sounds generic. It sounds like that's what the sales leaders typically say. Don't forget, that really means you're one no closer to a yes. Where what I want them to do, there's no harm in that by itself, but what I want them to do is I want them, instead of giving themselves a line that they don't even feel is authentic or true to who how they think or their mindset, I want them to think about, okay, why did you get rejected? And as we go into our first break, I want to leave you with a thought. When people have a fear of failure, means if you're not going to do it and you're not going to try, you have already failed. So the mindset is, I don't want to do this because I may fail, but by not doing it, you've already failed. So, But I don't think people typically compare it that way. So, look, we talk ourselves into not risking failure because we're somehow better off, but we can't gather the data. We can't learn what works, what doesn't, if we don't actually take the, take the risk. Right. So right. we come back from our break. We're going to talk more about fear of rejection and how specifically you can overcome that. This is Mark Altman for I Communicate. We'll be right back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. Glad to have you back. And we're talking about the F word today. And again, uh, it's not what you think. It's not feedback. It's fear. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about rejection, we were, we were speaking about fear of failure in the first segment. Now we're talking about fear of rejection. And what's funny is I want to focus on a different aspect of rejection, and that are the signs that someone might have a fear of rejection if you're in sales. And those signs are pretty simple. They're people who aren't making a lot of calls. They're people who aren't going on on the outside and visiting prospects and customers. Deals are stalling, right? And Or you're not being assertive enough or asking asking follow-up questions to get closes, Right, So those are all examples of people who have a fear of being rejected. And what's funny to me is when those behaviors exhibit themselves, what does a sales leader typically say? Listen, listen, Mark, you gotta, you got to start making more calls. You're not, you're not making enough calls. Uh, I had a client, a new client last month, Ted, true story, who told me, this person told me that, Mark, I need more leads. I need you to generate more leads for me. I need you to coach me on how to generate more leads. So I said, okay, fine. And I would tell you, with all the years I've done coaching and training, Ted, whenever someone says to me, I need your help doing this, it's virtually never that. It's virtually something else, right? So first week, 
Coach started getting more leads, gave her all kinds of strategies and tools to use. Comes back the second week, I said, how'd it go? She goes, yeah, I didn't do anything. I said, how come? Person says, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really feel comfortable with the techniques you, you suggested because they felt, I felt like I was going to sound like a salesperson. I said, ah, so the issue is you need to know how to feel comfortable and find the right wording and phrasing and approach to not feel like you are personally going to sound like a salesperson. And so talk the person through it. They had success and they felt more comfortable. But the point is, is if a sales leader says you got to make more calls or you got to close more deals or you're not hitting your quota, that's not a solution. That, that's not motivating. And that's why when it comes to emotional intelligence, Ted, I know you and I are such a big fan of this. That's why understanding how the mind works and how the mind dictates your behavior is so essential. And so, look, the first step in rejection is understanding why you're reluctant. So a couple of examples can be maybe you have a product that's highly technical that you feel like it's too complex, you won't present it the right way, or the customer won't react fondly to it because it is so complex. Maybe you had a bad customer service incident. I've worked with a few companies in the last year whose customer service teams hate doing check-in calls with the customers because they're worried that they're going to get an earful. So all the reasons why you have this fear of rejection, forget, let's not worry about the fear of rejection. Everybody has a fear of rejection. What you've got to be, you've got to get in touch with the awareness of what you're worried about specifically. And, and, and as I was saying before the end of the first segment, what I want you to think about with rejection is how do you properly assess why you got rejected? And it starts very simply with this. There's four categories. If you're sitting down and you just lost a deal and you're sitting there like, why did this happen? And don't blame the money. We always know salespeople like to blame the money. But if you're trying to really understand why this happened, four things. Number one, what was in your control that you could have done better? And by the way, the problem with that one is most salespeople don't document their process well enough along the way to understand what they could have done better or what they missed. Because unless it's recorded and I can hear your call or your presentation, it's a hard thing to assess if it's not documented. Number two, what was out of your control? Be honest, don't cheat. What was genuinely out of your control that you couldn't foresee happening? The corona pandemic was out of your control. That counts. Number three, irrational decision makers and fears. So the person who said yes, 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 yes along the way, and then came out with the most cockamamie reason at the end why they can't do the deal, well, then that wasn't in your control, and it was something that couldn't have been foreseen. Maybe the person who you were selling to got shifted to another department. You had a new contact person. That's something that's out of your control. And then the last one is both. What are the things that were in your control, and what were the things that are out of your control? But when Ted says... And this is my final thought heading to our next break. When Ted says rejection is one step closer to a yes, what he's really saying is the data you can collect from rejection gets you one step closer to a yes. So we'll come back for our third segment and talk about asking for the order. This is Mark Altman for I Communicate. We'll be right back.
I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. You know, Ted, I was thinking as we as we went to break that what I'm really talking about is, is this using rejection and doing these autopsies and like postmortems of closure. You know, and, and think about when, when you when you bury someone, a human being, there's not necessarily closure because you're still grieving and you're still feeling the emotions of that, which is okay. But the same thing applies to a sales deal. I don't want you to stifle your emotions. I don't want you to be angry or hurt or not be angry, hurt, or disappointed. But doing an effective post-mortem on rejection or an autopsy is a really effective way to do it. It's something that companies ask me to do from time to time, but it's such a valuable process and skill to learn. uh, Here's a uh, title for the next chapter in your book. You ready? Yep. Sales Forensics. Yeah, that's great. I love that, Ted. I love that. I'm making a note of that as we speak. Well, that is what you're talking about. You're talking about using scientific method to identify those factors that applied in that particular event, moment, presentation, or pitch. Love it. So, you know, Ted, you know, I I think of, we're going to go on to our third fear, which is fear of asking for the order. Yeah. And, you know, there's no way we're getting to all these fears today. We'll probably continue this next week, but... Look, there are no sales until somebody asks for the order. Well, well, this is the thing, right? And I think, you're so right. I think a lot of people hear that. Well, what do you mean asking for the order? I asked for the order. But I want you to take a step back for a second. This is another one of those phrases that gets under my skin. Now, I loved the movie Glen Gary, Glen Ross. As a matter of fact, I recently taped it on my DVR again because I'm going to rewatch it. That's how much I love the movie. And we all know the expression always be closing comes from that movie. And see, the thing is. Wait a minute. I got coffee inside. Do you want some? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but the thing is about always be closing is if you're struggling to ask for the order, the phrase always be closing doesn't make you feel any better because it's the word closing that you're struggling with. So you can't do it at all. Never right. mind always doing That's right. it. right. Right. So the way I look at it is, what gets in the way of of asking for the order? Well, I hear a lot of salespeople say, well, it's too soon. How do you know? Well, that's true, but how do you know if it's not too soon? I mean, I push it right back. it It could be too late. Maybe you should have asked for it earlier. Then you'll hear people say, well, most people typically need time to think about it and make to make a decision. That's true. But by asking for the clo- by closing or asking for the order, it doesn't interfere with someone's time to think about it. If they need time to think about it, they'll tell you. Well, you're drilling down on the thing that uh, salespeople need to do at the beginning of any presentation. That's right, and that is to define terms. Yep, Ted, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, when I think about what you're talking about, you know. One of the things that's very hard for people, and I just wrote a blog about this that will be published in my newsletter last week. Awesome. It's, it's setting the, the boundaries for customers to feel safe to tell you the truth, right? And that's what you're talking about, defining terms in the beginning of the presentation. And here's what it is, right? There's three things that you should be doing at the beginning of that presentation that Ted's talking about. Number one, throughout 
And this is what always be closing. This is a, this is always be closing light. You should be doing milestone check-ins throughout the presentation to gauge the temperature of how much you're resonating with the prospect. A, a, a milestone check-in is nothing more than, so does that sound good to you? Could you see yourself using that? Affirming the information shared. That's it. The second thing you should be doing, and I get a lot of pushback from sales organizations about this, is give people an out. I say, in the beginning of a sales presentation, within the first 10 minutes, I will say the following. Look, before we get too deep into this, if at any point you don't feel the solution's right for you, please don't hesitate to share because, Ted, this is the big part, because... My time is valuable, and I know yours is too, and neither of us would want to be wasting our time. There's nothing more powerful than the takeaway. Nothing. And so by, by, giving, by defining expectations, terms, setting the guidelines, you're allowing people the opportunity to tell you the truth. So then when it comes to the close, when you say, so, so are we ready to move forward, does this sound like... It's not so shocking because you've been checking in along the way and defining the guidelines. And last but not least, in, in terms of defining terms, this is big, and I, I hear very, very few salespeople and entrepreneurs do this. Explain your process. Listen, when I work with web designers, graphic design people, I complain about this all the time. You know, I want to know that if we're going to build a, a marketing promotional flyer together, I want to know how much time I'm going to need to allot in the process, what your steps are in the process, timelines, project check-ins, all that stuff. And so how it translates to sales is when it gets to the point of closing and you're having that fear of asking for the order, I would say, here's what happens now. Does it sound like you want to proceed with this? Are you ready to proceed? The person says, yes, you're happy. The person says, no, I need time to think about it or I need to check with other decision makers. And you say, no problem. Well, let me walk you through what happens now. And then you define the follow-up steps. And then you document the follow-up steps, send them in an email with clear dates, clear timeline, clear responsibilities. I think a lot of salespeople don't realize the real meaning of the follow-up letter or follow-up call or the follow-up email. In fact, it's not to be nice-nice and make them think you're a good person. In fact, it's to confirm mutual commitments. Couldn't say it any better, Ted. And and, and, and what's funny is it seems so obvious to, to us. But but you know what you know what else I hear too? A, a pushback I hear from salespeople about what you're talking about, Ted, they'll say well, I can document all this stuff we just talked about in the presentation, but that could be like a three, four paragraph email with bullets and stuff like that. I say, yes, it could. And guess what? You know what people don't, when they don't mind reading a long email, when it's about them, when it's all about what they said, because you send that email, they're reading, wow, this person really listened. Yeah, I did say that. Yes, I do have that fear. Oh, I forgot they can overcome that fear by doing this. So that's- Yeah, there's only one thing people like better- than hearing their own words. It's having someone else refer to their oh words God. as expert information. That's beautiful. That's so true. That's so true. So look, asking for the order, you know, how do you get someone who's uncomfortable and not an effective closer to be a better closer? Surprise, surprise. It's not, you need to close more deals. 
You're not closing enough deals. That's not the solution. The solution is do the check-ins along the way to confirm what you're saying is resonating and to understand any, any gaps there might be. Give people the out, telling them you have a thick skin and it's okay to say no if they're not connecting because you value time, and explain your process right, so right. you have an A, B option. A lot of times when you are looked at as a salesperson, if you explain to your customer what your process is, all of a sudden they have a completely different point of view. Because remember, they're not salespeople. They're buyers. They're in a position of management, let's say. They're not thinking about what the process is for sales. Um, one thing that I always did to get give people that out is that, well, you know, by the end of the month, I'm going to need to report this as a sale or put it behind me. What do you think? Do you want me to call you back on the 29th or can we do something right now? Just tell me right now. I like that. And, you know, you'd be surprised how many people will lean forward and say, Ted, I can't tell you right now, but yeah, call me on the 29th. Well, and actually, Ted, uh, great suggestion. And what's interesting is I've created a new acronym in sales that has really been resonating with people. It's called, instead of FAQs, they're called FEFs, FEFs, Frequently Expressed Fears. And, you know, today's show is all about the the fears salespeople have. Now you're getting into the sales, the prospect, the the fears the prospect has. And one of the fears, one of the biggest fears a prospect has is time. How much time you're going to take up of theirs. So we will do a future show on the fears that prospects have. But I love what you're saying because we need to get out in front of those fears because that's how we're going to provide peace of mind and build the trust. Otherwise, they're just going to see you through their eyes. Wouldn't it be better to have them see you through an example that you set for them? Yes. Yes. Now, now we're going to, the last two fears we're going to cover for today that we're going to close the show on are very different kinds of salespeople's fears. They have nothing to do with prospects. They have to do with internal fears. One of them is fear of losing your territory or part of your territory and customers. And one of them is fear of your compensation getting reduced. So when we come back after the break, we will get into those those internal fears. I'm Mark Altman for iCommunicate. We'll be right back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Thanks for joining us here at iCommunicate here for our final segment. Ted, a shout out to ZD's, by the way. I heard that commercial, love ZD's. And and, a, and I just need you, before we get into this final segment, yeah. could you pronounce the word T-R-A-T-T-O-R-I-A for me? Trattaria. Oh, my God. I mean, that was just poetic. A bona fiesta, senor. That, that was poetic, Ted. <laughs> I, I'll listen to your commercials all day long. Thank Those you. Those are great. Beautiful stuff. Okay, so... We're talking about different kind of fears now, and I do feel like we'll continue this program next week. Um, I am, just so you know, I am trying to line up uh, former NBA All-Star Roy Hinson to join us in one of the next two weeks who 
Uh, he's very active in the NBA Players Association, dealing with the p- pandemic and the future of what's going to ha- be happening in the NBA. So that hopefully, should be interesting. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully, I'll have him. In the meantime, internal fears, fear of losing your territory and customers. Now, this this is really tough, right? Because what can you do? So I'm going to take this both from the leader's perspective and the salesperson's All perspective. All right, this is a good. I know. I know we're going to have fun with this, right? One. So, I mean, talk about the bullpen, right? Yeah. So now, so the first thing I think to myself, if someone told me, if a salesperson came to me and said, you're not going to believe this, I just had some part of my territory taken away from me, my first instinct would be obviously, why? Now, from an organizational perspective, very often because they want to expand their sales force, um, or, which is a justifiable reason, or it could be because you are not leveraging or capitalizing on your territory enough. So what's interesting to me is there's two very different approaches when I counsel leaders on this, because if the reason is for the benefit of the organization, that's one approach. If the reason is because someone's not doing their job effectively, that's a different approach. Now let's take the person who's not doing their job effectively. Now you're not off the hook yet, leader, because the first thing I'm going to ask you is did you set expectations properly in the first place? If they're not visiting enough clients, if they're not calling on enough new prospects, if they're not generating enough new business in the territory, is that because the expectations and metrics weren't laid out uh, clearly in the first place? And if they were, how long, and this is a big one, how long of a precedent do you have to see before you're like, that's enough, we can't let this go on any further? And where I see a real challenge in sales leadership is is it's an example of communication ambiguity. Because after month one, where the salesperson isn't living up to expectations, the leader is frustrated. The leader is telling the salesperson they need to do better. But then month two comes, and we still have the same problem. And now the leader is getting more frustrated and angry. And at some point along the way, month one, two, three, four, five, Enough is enough, and the change is going to happen. But the thing is, is most of the time, the salesperson isn't been told, hey, this is your last shot, or this is a warning. It's just, you got to keep doing better. And I think there's a, I, I think, and listen, I'm Jewish, so my mother yells at me for using this expression. No. But I think we have to, we have, to have a coming to Jesus conversation. You know, I, I, think, I think everybody is owed a coming to Jesus conversation as a last resort to a behavior change. And it's no different. Look, you know, it's no different. Every time I hear a marketing person tell me that uh, you need seven touches, you need eight touches to connect with a prospect, I'm like, that's such incomplete information. Because I don't, you can throw me all the statistics and all the data, but there's more to just seven touches. There's varying your touches. There's the frequency of touches. And... There's the effectiveness of the communication. Is the email engaging? Is the phone call engaging? Is the thank you note meaningful? There's so many other variables. It's not just seven touches. So with salespeople, you can't just say, you got to do better, you got to do better, you got to do better, and take it away. There's got to be something done along the way. With that said, if the scenario is that the organization's growing and scaling, it needs to make a change, This is what I ask leaders to do. It starts with something really basic and simple. Be empathetic and authentic. Don't throw someone else in the organization under the bus and blame them for the decision. Own the decision as if it's yours. 
understand how they're going to feel. You can't pacify them. You know they're going to be not just disappointed, they're going to be mad. And you can't lie about it. You can't because lie. Because that's catching up to you quick. Totally. But then the question I would want to know as a salesperson is, this is the million-dollar question. Now that this thing is being taken away from me, how can I get it back? And not only how can I get it back, if I can't actually get that territory back, if I've convinced myself that my earning power is going down because of that reduced territory, then I want to know how I can still maximize my earning power. Those are the two things you've got to be able to effectively answer as the sales leader. And do me a favor, do not look at the salesperson and say, oh, well, you still have plenty in your territory to hit your numbers and exceed your numbers, because where that very well might be true, and it probably even is true, they're not buying that. And that sounds like you're pacifying them. So I think the keys to this is to really understand why it's happening, prepare those last two components if there's nothing you can do if it's an organizational decision. All right. Can we back up just two we steps? A- absolutely, we can back up. If you are defining terms with your salespeople and you're a sales leader and you're, in your words, giving them the news more than just you have to do better, you have to do better, you have to do better. If you're scaling this thing and you start off with, all right, we have an organizational change coming up and you must do better. If you don't do better, we have these two stages you're going to be at. If you get to stage two, I'm going to need X, Y, and Z so that I can go back and defend your job. And stage three is I cannot go back again unless you deliver results. Now, <laughs> I, I agree with you that sometimes when you say things to people, they think you're giving them lip service. But the fact is, if you have a salesperson that's struggling with a large territory, it is justified and reasonable to recommend that they focus on a smaller territory in order to sharpen their skills and make more money. If that doesn't work, then a white lie or a fib will work. And that is arranging the facts by saying, the boss wants me to hire this sales guy and he wants that territory or he won't join the company. So I need you to play ball with me. Let's get this new guy in the mix. Maybe there's something there that they can pass some leads around because they're really a rainmaker. And now the bo- you know, the boss of the boss has told him you got to hire this guy. I came up with a reason why I have to hire this guy and take away the other salesperson's part of the territory. So now there's no poison in the bullpen. Nobody's looking to take the other guy out. They want to shake hands and let's get to work together. Well, that that's an I guess inter- rub elbows. We well, don't shake hands. Well, Ted, I, I take away two things from that, actually. You know, one of them, and that's, that's something that this doesn't even talk to the fact of how it impacts your relationship as the salesperson with the person who's now taking your new territory. So that's, that's, that's a key point, you know, impacting the relationship with the new person. And then the other thing that you said that I like a lot is 
the stages and get in, in setting those expectations and terms. And, but but here's the challenge, Ted. This is this is what as leaders have got to do a better job. You know, I I find there's a lot of leaders who actually will say, you know, how can I help you develop or how can I help you grow? And they do that part well. And they will actually genuinely help them. But it's almost like when you when you have that one-off conversation of like how do you need help and then you'll actually help them, then then becomes the wiping of the hands and my job's done. And I, right, I, like they're off the hook. They're off the hook. Yeah. And this is like this is what continuous learning is all about. If there's a competency or skill I haven't yet developed, you're not going to be able to develop for, develop it for me in a one-hour conversation. That's right. It, it's just not going to happen. And that's where salespeople, that's where the coaching skill and the motivational skill. And, you know, another point Ted touched on that I think is important as well is, you know, look, when this person is disconsolate, for whatever reason, when you're taking away their territory, Ted hit the nail on the head. Not only might it make truly make better sense for the organization, but it really might not hurt you at all in the grand scheme of things. And so I've talked on the show in the past about a conversation technique called motivational interviewing. And that's when I think the leader has to let the, the salesperson come to the conclusion on their own by getting them to recognize this. Absolutely. You know? Uh, self-actualization comes with acceptance. Okay, so for today... We covered four of my top 12 sales fears for salespeople themselves. We will continue to do more shows about this because we have other sales fears to walk you through and help you overcome. We have prospect fears, and we have just rational human fears. So thank you very much for listening today. If you want more information about Bring On Mindset Go or myself individually as a coach or a virtual trainer, the number is 978-206-1535. What's that number? 978-206-1535. And then you can email me at info at mindsetgo.com. We have hundreds of videos on our YouTube channel. That's mindsetgo.com. Indeed. And we also replay this radio show and put it up for subscription on Apple and Spotify. So I really appreciate the time. I'm Mark Altman for I Communicate Radio Show. Hope you continue to stay healthy and well and have a safe week. Signing off. See you next time.